Now it's time to welcome Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent at 7.30. Laura, the government ended the year, got its uh, industrial relations reform through, ICAC, and some climate laws. But the voice, the voice is problematic. The voice is um, problematic and it's going to be difficult for the government this year, I think, Philip. Um, it hasn't started off very well. Uh, I mean, it had been a bit messy last year, but without a doubt, it's the bit of political contention that's going to be hardest for it to deal with this year. And it just doesn't seem to be able to articulate for people what exactly the voice is. Um, so we've got all these you know, suggestions that there's it's a lack of detail, but I don't think it... I mean, I was thinking about it tonight because everybody keeps saying, "Oh, we need more detail." And we had a sort of a sort of a sort of a slightly ludicrous situation last week where the prime minister was being asked, "Well, where's the office going to be?" But I think that's a reflection of the of the fact that I think the government sort of lost track of arguing the case for why the constitutional change is being made for starters, and second, it hasn't been able to just say, "Look." This is just going to be a body that will advise the government that basically gives um, Black Australia a platform that looks like it'll be democratically elected, um, as opposed to just you know various you know people who sort of stick their heads up, um, who who can sort of accumulate evidence, collect facts, um, learn to speak with one voice on issues that count for uh, First Australians and say, listen to us. Uh, we interviewed Megan Davis on 7.30 at the end of last year and one of the points that she was making was, I was saying to her, well, look, you know, there are all these bodies like and councils and things like that. Why aren't they sufficient? And she says, because nobody listens to them uh, ultimately or isn't obliged to listen to them. And I think that's the thing. They just... The, the, the argument is for a body which gives um, Indigenous Australia, which of course is, you know, a very complicated uh, series of communities because everybody speaks for their own land. It gives them um, a platform from which they can work out what the priorities are and you know, say to the government and, and the parliament, look, these are the issues that we think are important and these are the solutions which we think may work. Laura, if there's a, a lack of coherence on the yes side, there's a, a growing sense that the no campaign is going to be quite enormous. Well, it's going to be quite enormous and it, it keeps just um, eating away because people don't know you know, what this is all about, Philip. Um, and um, I think that's incredibly dangerous at this stage of proceedings. The whole basis of why we're having this discussion in the first place, as I said, I think has been lost. You know, the idea of why it is that we need to uh, amend the constitution has not been, you know, put recently. You know, the, the whole Great Australian Silence um, the exclusion of Indigenous people from the Constitution, um, <laughs> doing reconciliation, all of those sorts of really basic ideas uh, which are behind the voice have sort of been sort of lost. And I think my sort of sense is both in the government and amongst a lot of the advocates in the sort of, shall we say, the yes case, 
everybody's become so absorbed by details and processes over many years that they've sort of often lost track themselves of the fact that, you know, not everybody's been paying attention until now and they just want to know what the basic idea is. I don't think it's about details, but, the you know, the coalition's hardening its line on this um, and, um, and we're sort of seeing people like Julian Lisa from the coalition who's, I think, been reasonably supportive, saying, look, you know, you're in danger of losing me. Um, the chances as a result that the coalition will, um, both parties in the coalition will adopt a hardline position against the voice increase. Having said that, I think the last election sort of shows that we can't presume that bipartisan um, political support for the const a constitutional change may be as necessary uh, in a technical sense as it once was, but it certainly doesn't help that the debate is sort of so confused when, uh, when we're so early into the new year. I'm usually not optimistic, but I still feel there's a, a basic swelling of goodwill across much of the country about the voice, and uh, let us hope that the referendum does pass. Of course, it needs what, what, a, a majority sorry. of people in a majority of states, and they and don't pass very often. They don't. Um, I mean, I think there are, there is a groundswell uh, in in support, um, but there are so a lot of hardline people, and I sort of get it in a lot of the feedback whenever I report on this issue that um, you know it wouldn't matter what you said. They just have a hostility um, to First Australians, which you know is quite irrational and um, and and can be quite ugly. And I sort of I do fear for you know where this debate goes if it's sort of not under control. One of the things I think that's interesting, Philip, is we've got a whole series of mechanisms that have, have to be gone through before we got, get to the referendum. There has to be legislation to set up the referendum and um, which will discuss the question that's put um, in the referendum. Uh, that, that all goes through the parliament and that may provide a footing from which you start to get a sort of a slightly more uh, you know, informed and intelligent debate and one that's channelled through the processes of the parliament um, in, in a better way than we've seen to date. I, rem I, remember, I remember talking to Faith Bander, the late great Faith, and putting mm. this question to her. If we had to have the referenda that, uh, again, that gave Aboriginal citizenship and the vote and allowed them to be even counted in the census, would it pass? And mm. she thought, no. I said, why, mm. have we become more bigoted? And she said, no, but bigots are now better organised. New South Wales Senator Jim Molan's death has led to oodles of speculation about whether Tony Abbott might rerun and uh, Mark Humphreys, I think, spoke for all the satirists of the nation, hoping he would. Uh, I see. Um, yes, look, um, Jim Molan has been sick for some time and uh, I think uh, the, the indications were that um, his family and friends were very shocked by the speed of his decline um, in recent weeks. Um, I think, uh, while there's oodles of speculation about Tony Abbott, Philip, I'd just point out that most of it stems back to Michael Kroger, the, the, the great... Um, uh, star of some really successful Victorian 
Liberal election campaigns, uh, but be that as it may, that seems to be where it came from. And without a doubt, there'd be people who would uh, back Tony Abbott coming back into Parliament through the Senate um, if he wanted to. But uh, I think it's it's quite interesting to sort of work out what's going to happen there or quite difficult to work out what's going to happen there. You'll remember there was an incredibly bitter fight about the New South Wales Liberal Senate ticket before the last election uh, involving Conchetta Ferravanti Wells and various others. Um, it's a very factionalised part of the Liberal Party and that's saying something. Um, and the right is also incredibly fractured. Uh, there are people within the New South Wales Liberal Party who fancy themselves as uh, for having that spot. I think one of the interesting questions will be uh, whether the whole thing sort of erupts to a point where pressure's put on Maurice Payne, who's from a different faction of the party, to also step aside um, if if they um, you know if if there's if there's a war about this. Um, about who replaces Jim Molan, but um, it's going to be pretty messy and, and it's a pretty rich prize because, of course, Jim Molan had only served you know, virtually six months of a six-year term. So whoever gets in on the casual vacancy uh, gets in for the next five and a half years. You uh, spoke to Health Minister Mark Butler on 7.30 about whether the government... Uh, will bring in the latest version of the COVID vaccine, uh, but he um, he wasn't committing. Uh, well, I think he's uh, constrained by the fact that he has to take advice from ATAGI, uh, the expert body who advises governments on these things. Um, and there, he, he said that he was expecting to get advice, you know, in the next couple of months about whether there would be advice um, in time for for the um, for winter. Um, now that created a few waves when he said that, just because it implied that um, that COVID is seasonal, um, which most people don't think it particularly is these days. Uh, but it's 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 raised some really interesting questions, Philip. I think um, you know we, the whole issue of boosters has sort of fallen off the agenda, as has general questions about COVID strategy in the last few months. Everybody, I think, is just a bit over COVID, but um, the reality is that immunity, for even for people who've had all their boosters, is starting to wane. And there's sort of no really clear strategy for what happens next. You know, there's, some, there's a debate about whether these new so-called bivalent um, boosters work particularly effectively, um, you know, whether boosters in general uh, continue to be as um, efficacious as, as they have been in the past. But um, we, we've had an extraordinary response to the stories about COVID from people who, one, just want more information about, you know, what, what's going on, and two, would like to have access to boosters. Now, I think there's been a change here. I mean, a lot of people don't want to go back to restrictions and lockdowns. And as far as I can see, nobody is suggesting that that will happen. But a lot of people would like the choice of having access to uh, boosters, booster vaccines and to antivirals and feel that they can't get them. And, uh, and I think that's where the debate is going about COVID and COVID policy. I want to use the, uh, the surviving anti-vaxxers as a segue to the departure of uh, 
Jacinda Ardern because the anti-vaxxers played a major role in that. They did. Um, it, it, well, we've all been um, sort of enjoying the relative freedoms of, you know, <laughs> of, 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 of uh, the end of lockdown and things. Things have got very nasty uh, in New Zealand. I mean, and I suppose what's really striking about it to me is that uh, New Zealand went from having this massive wave of support for Jacinda Ardern and her handling of COVID in 2020, which was very, very tough, to this position where in January her van was followed, the van she was travelling in was followed by some anti-vaxxers who were sort of yelling at her and eventually forced her van off the road. Um, now, there was a lot of pretty vile abuse hurled at Jacinda Ardern in recent months and you know, she was uh, forced to cancel or not attend a public function because of security threats and things and obviously she is now resigned and while she's saying that it's not because of that, um, a lot of people feel that she was hounded out of office uh, and it would be... It would be it would be stretching it, Philip, to say that it was just the anti-vaxxers who were responsible for that. Um, without a doubt, government of Jacinda Ardern has always been vulnerable if you take COVID away, if that's possible, for some um, sort of going right back to uh, its the uh, first days of its election because Jacinda Ardern inherited an incredibly ambitious uh, policy platform uh, that was, she was trying to implement, which she couldn't implement effectively. Um, they were talking about the, the government building 100,000 houses. You know, there's a huge housing affordability crisis that's much worse than Australia's that's been going on for years. Um, you know, and a lot of what Ardern was dealing with was a hangover of their much more radical privatisation, free market push going back to the 1980s and 1990s. And it was just too much to try to actually be able to achieve any of these things. So COVID aside, there was a lot of hostility to the government and frustration with it. Um, then, But the COVID stuff, um, when people just really got frustrated with the, the extent of the lockdowns, that sort of seems to have really um, marked her for, um, for an early end to her career. Welcome back, Laura. Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent, 7.30, and we'll talk to her again next week. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.